Well, if you'll take a copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, you'll find the page numbers if you need it uh, in your bulletin in the insert. Um, I would ask everybody to have a copy of God's Word open as we look to it. It is, uh, remember that it is not our thoughts about God, it is His revelation to us, it is His mind in print. It is our infallible and only infallible rule or standard of what we believe and what we do. Indeed, we run to it because it contains the, the very words of life. Um, what a privilege it is to have it in our laps before us. Philippians 2, reading from verse 1 through verse 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God, it shall abide forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, that every bit of it is true, and every bit of it's important. For through it and by it and in it, you have revealed yourself to us. This morning, Father, we pray that you would anoint us with your spirit that we might understand, that he might enlighten our hearts, our minds, and our ears, that we might understand your love for us just a little bit more. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we come to chapter 2, we find the shift in Paul's argument. Up until this point, Paul has said nothing but good things about the Philippians. He says every time he thinks about them, he prays for them, and when he prays for them, he is so joyful at just their recollection. He's thanked them over and over again for their participation with him in the advance of the gospel, and even suffering alongside with him uh, for the, the progress of the faith of Christ. But this morning, he explores a little bit as their pastor an issue that he needs to talk about. In fact, he says, complete my joy. It's a little bit of a chink in the armor of his joy when he thinks of the Philippians. They are a godly bunch. It's a mature church. But just like any church, there are always issues to deal with because when sinners get together, sin happens. And so he says, complete my joy. See, apparently, one of the things that was facing the Philippian church was division. Or dissension. We find in Philippians 4, uh, verse 2, two names, Iodia and Syntyche. 
but probably others were involved as well. Judging from the verbs that are used in our text this morning, there are a whole bunch of them, by the way. Judging from these verbs, these corrective verbs, it seems as if there were many who were not acting out of humility, but whose egos had grown rather large. And as a result, they are sowing division, dissension, either willingly, knowingly, or not. The Philippian church was one that did not know 100% unity. Mostly because of a lack of humility and folks working out of what's called rivalry or conceit. Conceit's when you think too highly of yourself. And as a result, Paul must be their pastor for a few verses, calling them to repentance and calling them to focus on humility and looking not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, but it's interesting because Paul doesn't go straight there, does he? We're looking at the first four verses of this chapter this week. We'll look at the others, Lord willing, next week. Paul doesn't just launch right in and say, hey, you messed up. Get better. He starts in verse 1 with a reminder of all that they have received in Christ Jesus. He reminds them of how they've been transformed by God's grace. And how they are the recipients of God's ongoing love and blessings. And it is in response to this, as they realize that they've been transformed, he calls them to transform their behavior, to act like we talked last week, like who they are and whose they are, to work, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. We too have been transformed by God's grace. We too are the recipients of God's blessings, not only yesterday, but today and and every day for all of eternity if we are in Christ Jesus. And therefore we too, like the Philippian church, are called, but not only called, but enabled to live together as a church, as a community, as a people of God in unity and humility. So Paul begins with a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is one that the answer is obvious and isn't really meant to be answered out loud. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now if I were to ask you as the Pope Catholic, what would you say? (laughs) If I were to ask you, does the Pope wear a pointy hat? You would say, yes, of course he'd. Actually, our current Pope doesn't. He's not very Catholic. Uh, But the the point is, the answer is always yes. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Absolutely. Is there any comfort and love? All the time. Is there any participation in, in the Holy Spirit? Yes, from now to eternity. And we always have God's affection and sympathy. So we think about encouragement in Christ. What a blessing it is to have the encouragement that we have from being a part, having union, being united to Christ. But it begs the question, doesn't it? To what do we look for encouragement? To Frodo Baggins and the Lord of the Rings, it was to the friendship of Sam. To Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, it was just in the hope that this day would end. To Peter Parker and Spider-Man, it was the feeling that he was doing something to make up for the death of his uncle. To the thieves in the Italian job, it was just a plain old filthy lucre. To Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman in the bucket list, it was to experiences. What do we look to for encouragement? When, when days are hard, when everything's gone wrong, 
What do we look to? For the Christian and only the Christian, can there be found encouragement in Christ? An encouragement that does not waver. We may forget his encouragement. We may forget his help. We may forget his strength. But we are encouraged by him when we look to him. We are encouraged by his past, our past, how he and his past made past of our past, how he has forgiven us of all the things that are behind us. And he has rendered us new creatures in Christ. We are encouraged by his presence no matter what comes. He is there beside us. Matthew 28, 20, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we are encouraged by our future and his future as he comes to wipe away every tear. What great encouragement that day will be when Christ returns and makes all things new. Is there any comfort from love? You know, it is, um, there, there are certainly few things that are more comforting than knowing that you're loved. Think about when your child skins his or her knee or a grandchild. Rarely it hurts too badly. But what do they need? They need the comfort that comes from love. And what amazing love we have from the Lord the one, the love that is lavish and beyond all compare. It is steadfast and never wavers. It is unbreakable and it isn't dependent on circumstances. It's costly and never cheap. It's deep and never shallow. It's eternal and always. And his love will not only comfort us now, but when Christ comes again. You know, ultimately we are comforted by Christ because he refused to be comforted on the cross. That we might, as his people, be forgiven and adopted as the very sons of God. As we, as we start building to the exhortations that are to come, I want you to think about how we have received the encouragement from Christ and the comfort we have from God's love. And what we're about to talk about these next couple of elements is they build up, it, de- it defines who we are. And so as these things are true, how can we not give these to other people? How can we not walk in unity and in humility? We have participation in the Spirit. Now, if you were to buy a stock of, I don't know, Apple or Coca-Cola, if you were to buy a share of Coca-Cola, now, if, if Coca-Cola were to go up tomorrow, what would happen? You would, you would have a share in their profits. And if it were to go down, then you would have a share in their decrease and their loss. Well, participation means to have a share in. When we read that we, are, we have a participation in the Spirit, it means we have a share in the Spirit. See, the Spirit is the one who applies to us that which God has done for us. His primary role is not to give us ecstatic experiences or to speak in strange tongues. His, his primary role is to apply which God has, has achieved on the cross for us and apply it to our lives. And so we have a share in what God has done for us on the cross because the Spirit lives inside of us. And Jesus wins. Jesus has won, is winning, and one day will win completely and finally. And we have a share in that. We have a guarantee in that because the Spirit lives inside of us. How then could we ever walk in a way that is not worthy of the gospel of Christ? How can we ever have this unity between us? How can we ever let our egos get in the way after all that we've received in Christ Jesus? If we've been transformed by him, how can we not go and treat others the same way?
Do we have affection and sympathy? The, the word, Greek word affection here means tender kindness. I love that translation, tender kindness. When Jesus was worn out, when he just heard that John the Baptist had been killed, He'd sent the, the, the 12 out two by two and they came back. They were exhausted and they, and they went to a desolate place but the ca- crowds found them. And do you know what Jesus' response was? He had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Because we have been transformed, because the Philippians had received all these things, because they had been blessed in the heavenly places, seated with God in the heavenly places already, been given all the, the riches and glory already. There was a disconnect between who they were in Christ and their behavior towards each other. They had unity together. They were united together in Christ Jesus. They shared together that participation, that share in the, the Holy Spirit. And yet as Paul thought about this great church which was doing great things for the mission field overseas and and for Paul in Rome and yet at home on the home front as one has said, things were amiss. And he says, guys, look. Look at whom you've been declared to be in Christ. Look what he's always done for you. If, If any of these things are true, which they all are, then complete my joy. He's going to identify two different ways. The first is being united together. And the second is in humility. Look, if you will, at at, uh, verse two. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If you look at that text well, that verse, it's all summed up in this this, um, phrase, being of full accord. It means to be united, to be together together. And he's going to say two different things in two different ways. He's going to say the same mind at the beginning of that verse. And he's going to end it with one mind. So apparently that's a big deal for him. And then also the same love. He calls them to be united together in the same mind. Now that means that they think together. But it doesn't mean they can't have diversity of opinions. It doesn't mean they can't disagree on things, but it does mean that, hey, when you disagree, disagree out of unity and not in a way that will bring dishonor to your friends, to your neighbor, or to the Lord. It means that they would be united together with one goal, the glory of God and the progress of the gospel. Have you ever been in a canoe with perhaps a small child? This isn't an illustration about Thomas. We haven't been in a canoe together, so that's safe. But if you've ever been into a canoe with a small child, you know, even, even the smallest stroke in the wrong direction will completely mess up your direction on the lake. Even a hand that is stuck over the side of the canoe that is deep enough and your hand spread out enough will alter your direction. And so too, the Philippian church wasn't steering in the same direction. Apparently you had enough strong paddlers all going in the right direction that, that good was being done. But there were those who were paddling in different directions for their own reasons. Christ's direction and his earthly ministry had always been toward exaltation, but only after his death and sacrifice. 
Paul's ministry was always in one direction, the glory of God, that apparently the Philippian church was doing some spinning in circles. They weren't united together. Now we have unity together in Christ as believers. It belongs to us. We are all one before the cross. 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us that we have the mind of Christ. Don't strive for it. Don't try to get it. It says we have it currently. We're going to say the same thing. Uh, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus according to verse 5 of Philippians 2. The question is do we experience that unity of purpose of mind? The second thing he tells us here is that we are to have the same love for each other, that we are to be united together in love. The love which the Philippian church was meant to have for each other was a patient and kind love, a love that did not envy or boast, that wasn't arrogant or rude. He wanted them to have a love that did not insist on its own way or irritable or resentful. He called them to have a love that did not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoiced at the truth. He desired for them to have a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endure all things. Indeed, a love that would never end and would never fail. You know, when we are defined by God's love for us, and then as we share that love with others, we let that love cover a multitude of sins. When you disagree with your husband and wife, you you disagree and then you get over it. Why? Because you love each other and you move on. And you hopefully disagree well. But the basis for all this of of unity and and mind and love is ultimately humility. That's what he directs his attention to in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, when Christ comes into our lives, he he radically reorients our hearts. We are given a a heart transplant, and suddenly our lives go from being only about ourselves, now being about the Lord and others. Have you ever seen it at football games, baseball games, on television, um, the big foam hands, you know? The big foam hands have one finger, and it's, it's the index finger, and it's meant to be, you know, my team is number one. My team is number one. Now, I think if we're honest, we can be honest for a second. The gospel lets us. How many days a week do we walk around mentally holding the number one sign up about ourselves? I'm number one. You may not know it, but I'm number one. Humility turns all that upside down. It gives that foam finger to the person you're standing across from. They're number one. Ultimately, the Lord is number one, but, but what Paul is calling the Philippians church, Philippian church to is, hey, don't focus quite so much on yourself here. The famous definition of humility is not thinking of yourself less, but thinking less of yourself. Wait, no, that's not right. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking yourself, of yourself less, so you're not thinking of yourself quite as much. You know, a heart, a church that is filled with those who pridefully only look out for number one is one that is defined by rivalry or selfish ambition, as whatever your translation says, or conceit. Conceit is, is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Unity is destroyed when there's no humility. 
Because when we come with a place of pride and ego, there is no room for anyone else. Narcissism reigns. Narcissism is when everything that happens is about you. Whether someone else's sin or someone else's action, if the person cuts you off in traffic, it may not be because they're a bad driver. It's because of you are behind them. That's what pride does. But Paul calls us to humility And we have as the example of humility Christ himself who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we who have received salvation from from the one who has always known unity within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we have received salvation by the one who humbled himself, this is how we were saved. How can we not walk in humility amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ? As we bring this humility to the table, we fulfill Paul's command here to count others more significant than ourselves. This is a pretty radical idea, isn't it? That we would consider others more radical than ourselves, excuse me, (laughs) we might consider others more significant than we consider ourselves. If we're honest, we might think of a half dozen or dozen folks in this world, we think, you know, that, that person really is more significant than I am. And then usually the rest of the folks, we just think, you know, they're not even as good as I am. We can't even get to the point of being equals with me. This passage tells us not not just to consider folks our equals, but as better, as more important, as more, more significant than we are. And when we're holding that big foam hand up with the with number one, there's no room to do that. There's no room for anyone else and no one else's interests. We're the ones, the only ones that are significant. It is indeed a place that we need to repent of. But when a church, when a family, when a community begins truly to count others as more significant than they are, cross racial boundaries, cross class boundaries, cross social boundaries, cross railroad tracks, even folks like us. A church, a community is transformed. Because see, what you value is what you spend your time and your resources on. And if the only thing I value is me, then I have no time and I have no resources for you. But if I sincerely consider you as more significant than I am, then yes, I should look to my own interests, but I will begin to, as Paul says here, look to your interests as well. That only can come from a heart that has been transformed by the gospel. That can only come from a heart that has received the gift of salvation from the humility of our Savior, the only one who is number one. How are you doing on looking to the interests of others? Kids, as you head to school this week, there are going to be a lot of lonely kids, kids that don't have friends. Look to their interests. Adults, are there interests of those around you? Perhaps neighbors? Perhaps friends? Perhaps strangers? Perhaps folks in this room whom you know are hurting? When we become a Christian, we become, we are, we are, we become part of a community. We are instantly and instantaneously members of the body of Christ. And so our sphere of focus is no longer just on us, but on those around us whom we are privileged to call brother and sister in Christ. We don't get to choose who our brother and sisters in Christ are. God does. 
And he calls us not only to look to our interests, but also to theirs. You know, the only way that we will do this is if we ourselves have been transformed by the Lord. You know, he invites you to be part of a story that is bigger than yourself. A story that has been secured by our Savior and our God humbling himself to the point of dying on a cross for you. May you know him now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for calling us into community with each other. We pray that we would be transformed by the gospel on a daily basis, that we would continue to look to you, that in doing so you might transform us from one degree of glory to the next, that we might not only look to our interests, but also to the interests of others, even those who are not like us. Lord, that in doing so we might experience greater unity, that the kingdom might go forth not only in our hearts, but in this great community. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.